Hello Girls and Gays, you will notice that this is not the promised Harry Potter episode from last time. The, um, the Amber Autumn Retrieval arc for season two ended up being um, uh, slightly more complicated than last year. It was interrupted a few times. We had the Christmas thing happen in the middle, and this episode came out later, so it's, it's all pretty out of order. Um, but this episode was, um, uh, it's the last, the last of, of those episodes to release. It was originally recorded, um, in between the God's Not Dead episode and the Avatar episode, and then for logistical reasons, we weren't actually able to edit and release it until now. So you'll hear various references to the episodes on either side of Endearing, but consider this episode sort of a, a um, a lost and restored episode, maybe. An episode that was supposed to have happened um, several weeks back, and you're only just getting to listen to it now. Um, uh, and, and with this, you'll be able to have listened to it, and, and we will have finally recorded the Amber Autumn Retrieval... Uh, fuck, it's the, the Devon... Shit, I said the Amber Autumn Retrieval arc earlier. <laughs> fuck. Um, I can't... Do I need to re-record it? Hi, my name is Prince Devon, and this is original podcast Do Not Steal. I'm here, as always, with my uh, co-host, Amber Autumn. How are you doing, Amber Autumn? Is that me? Huh. <laughs> Do I get I to know, be I just, Amber? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I just thought I would start and just see how you reacted to it, basically, oh. was my plan. That was my whole plan there. I was like, cool, I get to be Amber. I'm gonna be honest with you, Devin is much better at cold opens than I am. Um, so I'm really, I'm really winging it for the Devin retrieval arc. Um, That's which fine. Is, he um, would be so proud of you. <laughs> I'm, I, I really hope so. He is gonna hear it. He isn't dead yet. Um, the assassins haven't quite succeeded so far. So um, as, as far as I know, he's gonna listen to this someday. I hope he listens to this someday. I listen to all the Amber Autumn retrieval arc stuff. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is now Prince Devon. Um, I am Amber Autumn, she, her. Um, uh, normally, Prince Devon would be here, but he is not here today, and so instead, um, I have on a special guest star. Uh, would you like to reintroduce yourself to the audience? Hi, everybody. My name is Becca. I'm a longtime friend of Prince Devon, and <laughs> do you, are you Princess Amber? Can I say that? That's... Um, I definitely, I mean, you can say it if you want to. No one else has ever said it about me. Well, then um, it's going to be I, a first. But I definitely first. would not complain. <laughs> um, I am also a fan of the podcast. Um, I am a sentient moss, um, a bit of a mm -hmm. hermit. I'm trying to think of a you, better... You described yourself as sentient moss off air, too. And I definitely didn't at the time assume that was like a regular identity label that you applied to yourself with any frequency. Um, but it seems like, no, it, it maybe is. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think so, you know. It's, it's a, it's a goal, it's something I want to work toward. Soft, green, <laughs> just vibing, hanging out on a log. That's who, <laughs> that's who I... Bunch of, a bunch of bugs crawling through ya. Oh, the best. <laughs> um, so this is, uh, original podcast Do Not Steal, a weekly podcast in which every week, uh, normally my co-host, Devin, and I, uh, will take your favorite and or least favorite intellectual properties, franchises, ideas, hopes, concepts, and we will make an original character in that franchise as a way of talking about what makes that franchise unique or interesting. Um, however, uh, Devin is currently re between recording spaces right now, 
Um, and so we are doing our, uh, our, our apparently mandatory once-per-season retrieval arc where one of the hosts goes missing for a little while. Um, I went missing for a little while in Season 1, and we did the Amber Autumn retrieval arc, and now it is time for the Devon retrieval arc where he's missing, and every week I take on a, uh, a, a special guest to fill his shoes for the episode. Last time, when we had the Amber Autumn retrieval arc, um, Becca came on, uh, to talk about Kiki's delivery service. Um, and that episode ended up being, I, I mentioned in my, in my season's end wrap-up, uh, my, my favorite episode of the season that we ever did. And I never got to do an episode with Becca. It was just the one in the Amber Autumn retrieval arc, so I have brought her back for the Devon retrieval arc so that she's gotten one episode with each of us, but has not yet gotten to do an episode with both of us. Yeah, how Someday are you? Maybe this is like a Bruce Wayne set. Batman thing. Like, how do I know that you're not just the same person? Like, <laughs> you're never together at the same time for me. I'm recording both sides of the podcast every week and then editing both versions of myself together. That's so much work, but like, I respect you for it. I think, I think if I had that kind of vocal range, I, my, like, my normal speaking voice wouldn't sound like this anymore. I would sound... I don't even know what I would sound like, but it would be it would be different than this, and probably unrecognizable every time you spoke to me. You're just, I would like... Be completely inconsistent. Like, uh, you're, like, auto-tuned to the point that you're just a vocaloid, <laughs> like... Who are you? You're not real. I think I would sound like a different celebrity every time I spoke. Like, just long enough that people would be like, Sorry, is that Lucy Lawless? speaking and then i like me suddenly i don't know sounding like jennifer aniston i would be like who <laughs> sorry no <laughs> oh my god i'm so excited i am uh i am not as um mentally coordinated i feel like as i was last time but that's okay because we're just gonna roll with it that's okay yeah you were um you were the most coordinated anyone has ever been coming onto the show last time. So I don't I don't think that's a standard you need to regularly hold yourself to. I'm just I'm just happy you're here. Um, so excited. Yeah, so do you wanna um talk to us about what it is that we are talking about today? The audience has all already seen the title and most of them have gone, What on earth is that? Um so do you wanna explain it for those folks and then also possibly re-explain it for folks like me who are aware of it but are not as close to it as you are? Absolutely. So um the last time I was hosted on the show and I talked about Kiki's delivery service and the connections between the movie's themes and uh what I believe to be the millennial experience um in the world today. And um I talked a lot about um, the connections the movie makes regarding depression and finding your place in the world. And here I am back on my bullshit, ready to do the same thing again today. But this time I'm going to be talking about a different movie. Um, but before I get started and kind of fall into my rhythm, I want to start my segment by talking a little bit about feelings because that's what I'm best at. <laughs> so I'm going to ask a question and I just actually want you, Amber, to kind of consider it and whoever else is listening. The big question being, uh, what gives your daily life meaning? Like what are, what are the things that get you out of bed every day? And I just, I just want you to take a moment to consider two to three things um, that really define uh, your daily life. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like a heavy question, but... Uh, <laughs> no, it's good. Um, so for me, um, my, my husband, uh, my cats, my family, uh, but, you know, it, can, it doesn't have to be the big things. It can also be the medium things and the small things like your job or uh, even your cup of coffee in the morning and how you prepare it each day. Um, the things that give my life meaning, uh, the great and the small, um, can be represented through a, a kind of mental exercise that I actually used when I was still in teaching. Um, it's a little skit that you can do with a young adolescents called A Valuable Lesson for a Happy Life. Um, and you may be familiar with it. It's a representation of priorities and happiness used you're, you use a jar, and you have three kinds of objects to fill the jar. You have ping pong balls, you have pebbles, and then you have sand. And first, you try to fill the jar up with sand at the bottom, and then you stack the pebbles on top, and then you try to see how many ping pong balls that you can fit in your average jar before it no longer fits and you realize that it doesn't work that way. So you dump everything out and then you start over and you put as many ping pong balls as you can fit in first that fill most of the jar. And then you move on to your pebbles and you fill in the cracks um, to as, uh, as much capacity as you can and then you finish it off with as much sand as you can. And if you compared the original jar with the ping pong balls on the bottom to the one with the ping pong balls on top, uh, you would find that when you prioritize your ping pong balls on the bottom, you're able to fill your jar to a very healthy capacity. And this is a good representation of how we balance our life. So ping pong balls are meant to represent the big things, um, your loved ones and your relationship with others and your relationship with yourself. And then the pebbles represent the slightly smaller things like your home and your job and your car. And then the sand are all the tiny things, your commute and, <laughs> I mean, anyone and anything. It could be a cup of coffee. It could be your chores. All these little things and the medium things and the big things, when you prioritize them properly, you can fill the jar and it's full. And it's a good way of showing young people through visual representation, that balance is important. And if you don't prioritize the big things and you fill up your jar with all the small things first, and those, those are the things that occupy your mind, um, you're not probably going to be able to manage everything efficiently. And I always found a lot of meaning in this little representation. And I feel like it's going to fit really well here with my theme today. Um, and honestly, it touches a little bit on the energy that I brought in the last episode with uh, Kiki's delivery service, uh, because here we go, ready to talk about the heavy things, but also the pleasant things. Um, so all that aside, now I can introduce uh, the movie that I'd like to talk about today. It's a little piece called In This Corner of the World by, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this pronunciation, but Sunao Katabuchi. Um, and it was produced by Studio Mappa in 2016. This is a little animated slice of life movie that came out alongside uh, Your Name and A Silent Voice. So very stiff competition for anime movies that year. Um, yeah. 
But it's a delightful little movie, and if you're able to find it on a streaming service, I highly recommend it. Um, it also has a manga available, but I've never actually seen it in person, so if you're able to find it, all the better. Um, so, movie is uh, centered around a character named Suzu, who is a young woman growing up in wartime Japan. So the movie... It, it takes place at the beginning sometime in the mid to late 1930s, and then by the end of the movie, it's 1945. Suzu is a childish, daydreaming artist. She lives in the Japanese countryside with her parents and her siblings, and it's a very soft slice of life theme from the beginning onward. It's entirely from her perspective, and sometimes it takes place in her mindscape. Um, she's telling stories at the very beginning of a time she was kidnapped by a demon, and how, uh, how she got back to her family. She's telling her siblings. Uh, she's going to school. Uh, she has a budding childhood romance with a friend. She eats watermelon at her grandparents' house and naps in the shade. Um, and it's a very soft, aesthetic representation of a normal childhood for uh, a person during that time. The movie kind of balances this energy by having a soft and eclectic art style. Um, I'm a very big fan of art styles that give me perspective of the story without any dialogue. Um, and Studio Ghibli is very, very good for this, but this is not a Studio Ghibli movie. And normally I'm all about Studio Ghibli, but in this circumstance, uh, I love it even more because this is a relatively unknown studio and I feel like what a fantastic way to establish yourself uh, by creating a movie like this. Uh, the color palettes for the background are soft greens and browns, um, almost like water pastels. And the style kind of dabbles into Impressionism, uh, especially when you're seeing the world from Suzu's mindscape. Um, she's an artist, and when she's, when she's thinking about the world, when she's daydreaming, uh, it's almost like a sketchbook. Uh, the world, soft white backgrounds and very colorful, hand-drawn scenescapes and it's just uh, the way the best way I can sum it up is a very magical non-magical vibe nobody knows was the is the scene where she gets kidnapped by the demon real did she make it up just to tell a story um, it kind of comes up at the end of the movie and you just you never know and I like that don't tell me that's a that's a I'm a big fan of soft world building and I did talk about that in the last episode and I still kind of like that here. Don't don't tell me all the answers. I don't want to know. So true. So true. <laughs> um so Suzu's living her normal life. Um like I said, she's going to school, she's spending time with her friends and her family. Um there's a really terrific scene here um where she draws a or I guess it's a painting that she does for a classmate who isn't allowed to go home until he finishes the assignment. So she draws it for him and they're staring at a river and she imagines the wave caps as white rabbits. And that's how she draws them. Um, and I, I wish that I could, there was a screen that I could sh use to show you um, how this image looks, but it, again, it's just, a, it's a very defining how it sets the tone for the movie and how you're supposed to feel 
Um, I think it's a little bit of an escape to childhood. It's very, it's comforting. It's soft, um, which is such an interesting buildup because what we're actually talking about today is a Japanese wartime film. Like I said, the movie takes place between the 1930, probably 37 onward to 1945. Um, and, this movie can be a lot. Um, so if you watch Studio Ghibli movies, you're not unfamiliar with wartime films. Um, war is something that is very particular to uh, Miyazaki himself, and he does add it as an element to a lot of his movies, like House Moving Castle, Princess Mononoke, The Wind Rises. And most closely, this film is going to have connections to uh, the tearjerker that many are familiar with, Grave of the Fireflies. The movie is actually about the impact of war and what existing during this time is supposed to be for the average person. Um, it's a very, you can inject yourself into the characters in a way that is both comforting but also haunting. The art style is so soft, but during these high impact scenes, the art style will change and it will become chaotic. Um, and so as the story goes on and Suzu grows up a little bit, she gets married to a man that she doesn't know and moves out of her childhood home uh, to aid his family. Uh, they live in a city called Kure, which is famously uh, known for its production of warships. Um, so everything in that area was connected to the war during that time. And so it's, it's a theme that you can't ignore. It's no longer in the background. It's in your face. And it's, it's about learning how to cope with it, if, if that makes sense. Suzu has to deal with all of the harsh realities of war that don't just come from the impending destruction of being on the front lines, the things that you don't see, like learning how to cope with rations and what do you do when you are losing your freedoms. And there's this constant undertone of dread and loss, but Suzu has to overcome it because you just have to keep living. So she's living with her new family. And as the years go on, uh, they build a bomb shelter and they lose family members and the community is stretched thin. There's no supplies and they're losing hope, but you just have to keep waking up and finding those reasons to keep living. Um, and as the movie goes on, one thing that I think is really beautiful, um, the art style that is so soft, those greens and browns at the beginning, they start to dull if you pay attention to those backgrounds. Um, as Suzu is starting to lose that vibrancy uh, that she has for life. And I guess spoilers here, so I do apologize for that. Um, but uh, uh, the climax of the movie is a bomb explodes that kills one of Suzu's closest family members, a child, and she also loses her right hand, um, which is also her drawing hand. 
which is one of the most important things to her because drawing is her life. Um, the scene, despite how tragic, is beautifully orchestrated, uh, chaotic music, and it's a black and white uh, chalk on a chalkboard style of animation and completely contrasts with the rest of the movie up to that point. Um, but it's beautifully done and now it's time to really feel the that those dreadful undertones are at the surface now and we have to we're faced with the loss that war really brings us there's the, the movie also has a absolutely gorgeous soundtrack there are several um songs in it that are both very telling and also just I mean, I I highly recommend that everybody watch this movie and just pay attention to that background music. Um, the things, the noise when characters aren't speaking. Uh, one of the songs, again, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but it's called Migete no Uta, uh, which basically translates to the right hand song. So the reason I wanted to bring that up now is now that she's lost her drawing hand, and she's lost this vibrant child that gave life meaning. It's not her child, but it's the only child in the household who she's very bonded with. And uh, this is a turning point in the movie. All of Suzu's will and, and her joy, it, it's just evaporated. And the movie's the color scheme just becomes black and white and gray. All the ways that Suzu had found to keep living over those years and the validation she found in daily life is just it's just gone you know the reference that i made toward the beginning this jar that suzu has um with the ping pong balls and the pebbles and 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 it's not it's not full there's nothing nothing left to give it meaning so after this point in the movie the bomb eventually gets dropped on hiroshima and this is really the movie's this is the beginning of the end so Japan surrendered in 1945 after a little boy was dropped on Hiroshima and the other bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. And upon Japan's surrender, Suzu breaks. And when you think about it, all these years, Suzu was doing what you were told to do, what she was told to do. All that loss, all the hard work, it must have felt like it was for nothing. Your, your country failed you, and you persevered so hard, and what was the point? I guess the point that I want to touch on that with this and cycling back to feelings is, I wonder how many people that are listening to this right now feel that way. How many of you feel like you, were, you did everything you were told to do, and, and you're still not succeeding? You took out those student loans. You went and you, you bought a car. You bought a house with the interest rate that was available to you at the time. And, and, and just nothing feels like it's going right. How many of us are working hard every day and we still feel like we're right on the edge of that cliff waiting for the one bill that we can't pay or the one experience that we don't have the spoons for? And unfortunately... While this is not, you know, this is not an easy topic, but welcome back to the millennial experience because here we are today still persevering and finding 
all of the reasons to keep going. So when I talk about the ping pong balls for me, like my husband and my family and my cats, and then my pebbles are my goofy little car and my job and the places I like to go and the things that I like to do. And, and then comes all that sand and every grain of sand seems so small and insignificant on its own, but they matter. They do, they fill up that space. And for me, this movie is able to touch on those grains of sand so well. To, to me, the sand is when my coffee machine perks at 2.30 in the morning as I get ready for work. When my cats sleep on clean laundry because the laundry basket is in a sun patch. When I'm doing dishes and the detergent bubbles out of the top and little bubbles just float through the air. It's, it's those tiny mundane moments that you often take for granted, but they make being alive so, so worthy. And I wouldn't want to live without them. And so while I talked about the big things that happen in this, in this corner of the world, small things are the, the things that really connect to me the most. I'm a big feelings person. Studio Ghibli and Fruits Basket, they make me feel things because these slice of lifes make my life feel magical and meaningful. So when Suzu goes out first thing in the morning to gather the firewood, to start the fire, to start the breakfast, there's just this little scene where she's kneeling in front of the fire with rubbing her hands together. And, and she's actually kind of just smiling and she looks tired. And I feel that every morning when I'm cold and tired and getting ready to leave for work. And I actually think about the scene more than you would probably guess, just because it's so small. It's not really meant to advance the plot. It's supposed to tell you, to remind you that these people existing during this time of war, they're people. They're, they're doing their best. They're, they're surviving in the face of uncertainty and this hollow sadness, but it doesn't have to take away from what we have. Another good example is Suzu sitting out in her garden while she's picking extra food to pair with their rations because they planted a garden, and she draws the ships because from the hill where their house is, they can see the harbor where all of Kure's wartime ships are docked. And she, <laughs> this is actually a very cute scene. She starts to draw these ships and the Japanese police, they catch her and they accuse her of being a spy. Why are you drawing ships? What is, what is this supposed to be? And eventually they report, they report her to her family. And eventually after a lot of interrogation, they do let her go. And, and at first everybody just has their head hung. You got screamed at by the police all day, accused of being a spy. She must be so embarrassed. And then everybody laughs and they're doubled over just at the absurdity of this daydreaming airhead being a spy. For who? For what? This sweet, goofy little woman. Because again, this is all we have. When everything, when the weight is crushing around you, sometimes all you can do 
is take take those moments and find joy in them because it's so there's nothing left if you don't that that gray that gray scale that the movie portrays as it goes on it does get hard but i really appreciate all the lead up in the movie of these soft moments suzu tries new recipes and she goes to the community meetings to learn how to be a good citizen to the to the japanese government to do everything right to provide for your family to to be resourceful to to smile to spend time with your loved ones to connect with the people around you and that's really what this movie is about it's a wartime movie but it's more about the survival of the people that we don't see the people that are reflections of us and while we may not be in the face of wartime in America. I know that there are people who are listening to this right now who feel the fear of the unknown and the uncertainty every day. I mean, you, we live in a time of media where you can't avoid it, but sometimes you have to get, you I don't know how many times I've had to just get off of the social media. Don't look at Facebook, don't look at Twitter. Heck, don't even look at Reddit. Pinterest is your friend. Pinterest, <laughs> Pinterest, <laughs> Pinterest is always there for you in the most non-political way, um, and that's important because, like you know, this movie is it. It balances the horrors and the sorrows with the monotony, the joyful monotony of being a person, and that balance is something that I feel most of us practice in our daily life. Every day, we have to live for the magical and the mundane. Um, the if you look at a poster of the movie, it's uh, a picture of Suzu sitting on a hill blowing a dandelion, and and that I think that is the perfect still representation of the point that I'm trying to make here. That we have to go to work, and we have to wash our clothes, and we have to budget, even when there's no money to spare. We but we also have to try new things and we have to be okay with failing sometimes we have to find joy in the small in that sand because that's how we live through it that's how we fill our jar the the ping pong balls and the pebbles are valuable and they're not going anywhere and they should be prioritized but the sand is what really fills us up and just makes us the a whole person so for anybody who's watched grave of the fireflies if you Look at the visual style of the art. It's a very, it's much darker and like a very matte, darker greens and grays. And it's, it's trying to portray what the movie is about. Loss and this heaviness and the impact of the war on civilians. And it has a much more tragic ending than... Uh, what in this corner of the world is about because in the end you we, they still have to pick up and just keep going the war is over and it feels like every loss was for nothing and then you have to decide whether or not you just keep going you let yourself cry and you let yourself be tired and then eventually you can choose to get up and we just have to start all over again. I love both movies, but I think in the end, In This Corner of the World just really resonates with me because I am just such a, I'm such a visual person and I want to connect with 
my protagonists and I see so much of myself in Suzu in her childish mindset and the innocence that she wants to hold on to even though now she's married and she has duties to a family and to her community and her country and everything is out of her control and she's still she's still trying to be joyful and to take those small moments to to breathe to balance the mundane with the bad we choose to survive because there is something on the other side even if it's uncertain and you can't see it i'm just going to keep walking because i want to believe that there's something on the other side and so I love I, there is something on the other side. There is um, something on the other side. And please, there I... There is something on the other side. I, you know, feel free to butt it and, and just, I mean, because I'll just go on forever. But that's, that's, that's basically, I don't want to give the whole movie away. I actually really didn't want to talk about all the scenes of the movie. But I wanted to talk about the feelings of the movie because I, I need that. I don't know about everybody that could be listening to this or or you Amper but I I feel a lot of wonderful things but I also battle so much uncertainty all the time and I try so hard to to keep myself focused on the tiny things because they silence out those the things inside my head that tell me that sh- and that things aren't going to be okay and the fact that a movie can make me think about those things can make me feel that way that can connect to me without without having to rub in my face the the you know the politics south park is great at this you know they they take all of the the modern culture <laughs> it is the south park season yes and 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 they're so good at it and that's wonderful but sometimes i don't i don't want I don't want to live in the reality. I don't I don't want to think about solutions and what to do next all the time. I just want to I just want to live moment to moment and figure it out. And and I just feel so connected to Suzu in her attempts to stay above that fear because I do that probably every day. And I I mean I truly just can't recommend it enough. Like this it takes a lot for a movie to make me feel my age and also like a child at the same time if that makes sense i think it's interesting that you like you talk about it a lot as being the millennial experience and and tying in the millennial experience and and in like a very like literal way the movie is not about the millennial experience right it's about um uh in like it takes place in japan 1930 something to 1945 which is very much not the millennial time period that it's that it's talking about, and I think that like you know the, the the name of the movie is in this corner of the world, but of course the the filmmakers aren't making a movie for like a like a, a wartime Japan. They're they're making a movie for 2016. I, I think that like the th- the thing that you're teasing out here is uh, not just oh, these themes work for millennials, but, like, the, the universality, I think, of, of a lot of the ideas of, like, like, we all at some time in our lives have, have felt overwhelmed, and, and, and we all um, uh, need to fill our jar with ping, ping pong balls and then pebbles and then sand. The, you know, I, I call it the millennial experience, and I suppose that's just because that's my experience and it's the experience of my peers, but really it's, I mean, it's just the human experience when... I mean, if, if, if I can connect with a woman alive in 1945 
wartime Japan because she's just trying to get by every day. That's a wonderful thing to be able to connect with somebody, especially when, I mean, if we're really going to look at it this way, the movie never says Americans, but Americans are the enemy. Um, there's actually a scene that I kind of forgot to mention when I was talking about the music, um, but I, I do think it's just kind of cute. I don't remember where the characters are, but the little girl that I talked about earlier, they, they hear a song, and the song is actually Moonlight Serenade, which I really love as somebody who used to be in jazz band and uh, a lover of music. And, and, and the little girl just kind of asks, it's a very like not important statement, but she goes, isn't this the music of the enemy? Um, and then toward the end of the movie, uh, the Americans have come and they're giving out extra rations to all these people that are starving. And the conjunction that Suzu and these characters did what they were told uh, they they stood by their government and they were vigilant and resourceful and didn't take more than they needed. They didn't even have what they needed, but they certainly didn't take any more. And then, and then everything still failed. And then there's a scene where Suzu and her sister are eating candy that the the Japanese or the American soldiers are handing out to these Japanese uh, villagers. And again. It's so small, but I just feel like those scenes, despite not being plot driving, are incredibly relevant because the mundane is so powerful. Like, and, and movies like this, Studio Ghibli films, they, they allow me to, to, to take a look at the world that I live in and to savor it. When you're driving to work, Look at the trees and start to see if they're, are they turning red on the tips? Did you, did you make your coffee and it came out perfect today? Or did you, did you put it in your favorite cup? I have 8 million mugs and sometimes you grab it and it's just, that's, that's the right one. <laughs> the, the world dictated the perfect <laughs> cup for me in this moment. I, I can't even put into words the value of taking the moments to slow down and to look at these things. That's, that is the magic of this movie is it's a reminder that we not only do we have to balance the feelings and the existential elements of being a person, being alive, whether it's 1945 or it's 2016 or it's 2023, but it also just, it reminds me to, to look at the world playfully and softly and I want to be like them I want to be like these characters I I want to be Suzu I want to be Toru Honda I want to I want to be soft because the world keeps pushing me to be hard I know you've seen this movie and I'm I'm actually genuinely curious what like what, especially because you're so much more sophisticated in your, uh, oh gosh, no. in, in your movie, like in the genres that you watch and your ability to communicate your feelings on them. And I, I'm just curious, like how you felt when you watched this movie. You know, I, I actually originally asked Amber if she would watch it for this segment and she was like, oh, I, I saw that in theaters and I was like, oh, cool. Great. Um, so I'd like to know what did it did it have meaning for you and if 
you feel any of the things that I do. Yeah, I, um, for the last um, nine years or so, I've, I've watched a movie in theaters every Tuesday, um, uh, which I, I, I've seen a lot of obscure movies that um, uh, no one ever talks about, and, and so rarely do I get the, the pleasure of that paying off for me, where someone goes, oh, you should check out this rare movie, and I get to say, uh, I saw it in theaters uh, seven years ago. What a power um, move. But I, yeah, so I, I saw it one time seven years ago, um, and so I don't necessarily have quite as um, immediate uh, a, an attachment to it, but I think that the, the, the ideal phrasing that I would use um, is, is a phrase that you used um, pretty early into your, into your segment, which was you described it as um, being, um, I think, both gentle and haunting are the, the two words that you used. Um, and, and yeah, I think that, like, this is a movie where, like, one really important detail is that, like, Suzu is growing up in Hiroshima. Um, and, uh, like, you as an audience have some ideas about what that could mean for her in the future in a way that she doesn't at the time, right? Like, she knows things are getting harder for her. She knows that rationing is happening. She knows that war is breaking out and that things are dangerous. But you as the audience know um, that... Uh, the the story is taking place in and around Hiroshima and at moments when she um, moves away or moves back towards the city these have these are moments that have a lot of like dramatic weight for the audience and I, I think that like you've talked a lot about having characters who uh, are are currently experiencing hardship and are uh, like experiencing joy um, uh, despite it or around it. And I, I, like, I also want to uh, narrow in on, um, this, like, almost like this sense of futility where you have these characters who you as the audience, like whether or not it is, is truly destined to happen that way in the narrative feel in some way doomed. They, 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 they are in a place that we know is not going to last forever and and in fact will almost certainly not last to the end of the movie um it's kind of the same the same trick where titanic pulls where it's 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 in the back of your mind the whole time you're watching it and um i think that like the experience of experiencing the sand in those moments of like seeing these moments of of joy of laughing about the absurdity of the guards accusing her of being a spy um, like, these things, like, also take on an extra dimension of meaning in that, of, like, like, we're not living in a world that is ending, but we are living in a world in which things end, in which, um, a lot of things are getting worse and, and will get worse, and, uh, we are all going to die and everything around us is going to die, and, um, uh, these characters are like finding these moments of joy in what we know is in the face of mortality is in the face of like the inherent like temporality of things um temporality is not the word uh temporariness of things transience that's the word um i don't know i i, I think that that's i think that's just another another dimension of all of this yeah i I don't think that the movie even broke my top 10 for the year that I watched it because uh, it was, I mean, 2016 was just a killer year for movies. There was a, a lot of really, really good stuff that year. I don't um, even think, like, as, if you asked you me to name but, five movies from 2016, I, I don't even remember movies from 
last year. Like I, <laughs> I'm this so podcast, impressed. You've already named three movies from 2016. Okay, well that's it. That's that's I've, <laughs> I've peaked. Three is three is the win. So if you have ten, um, wow, I'm so impressed. I probably watched around um, 50 or 60 movies in theaters that year. Um, I, I I don't think that this one made my top 10 list this year, but it probably would have made my top 15. It's it's it is a wonderful film. Um, for for the reasons that you described and more. I don't know why I come on this show and I'm like, it's time to talk about your feelings, everyone. <laughs> but you know, I just I keep I keep imagining that there's just somebody out there who listens to this and and you don't know who I am and I don't know who you are, but you know, we we're all the same. And that's kind of the point that I was making earlier where it doesn't matter if if I'm a if I'm a married woman in 1945, or if I'm a married woman in 2023, or you know, we're the Japanese, the Americans. Like, it's not an us and it's not a them. We're just we're just all people, and and we're doing our best, and we get lost, and we get tired, and we find reasons to connect. And if anything that I say even resonates with you for just a minute then like it was worth speaking, you know, not because I'm trying to be some kind of mental health guru, but because I, I mean, I'm connecting with fictional characters, people that, people that were never real. And the only thing that brings them into my heart and mind is the visual storytelling of very talented people. And I don't have that talent to offer, but if I can give somebody the opportunity to share in that appreciation with me and it gives you even just another moment or two of perspective in your life for the things that you find gratitude for then i uh, i mean it it's so sincerely worth it in my opinion so i mean thank you so much for having me on today uh i feel like i was a bit more rambly than i was last time i'm running on a lot less sleep uh but it was still it was it's a delight so um well, i mean you had to get ready for work at 2 30 in the morning this morning so i do i do and tomorrow's the same um so i i, I want to ask do you want to make an original character for this property it isn't normally what we do but you sort of tend to break the mold in your episodes I we know. haven't going long enough <laughs> you know i i mean i i st- I'm going to stick with tradition and go ahead and say, you know, when you, when you brought it up when we were talking about the structure of today's episode, I, I, I did think about it. And I think if I was going to be, if I was going to create someone, I want to be Suzu's neighbor. I want to be somebody that she sits next to in those committee meetings while they're learning about how to build bomb shelters. I want to, I want to share recipes on how to make four sardines feed a family for two days, the, the incredible things that they have to do and they had to do in real life. I want to be, I just want to be a friend to somebody like Suzu. I want to watch her, I want to watch her draw and I want to eat, you know, our simple meals of radish and rice and figure out how to fix holes in our clothes when we don't have sewing needles. And I mean, I just, I, you know, I kind of answered generically like this last time, but I, it's not because I'm trying to find a cop-out answer. It's because I like these characters so much that I want to find a way to... I just would like to be their friend. Like, I have something to learn from them. So I'm going to... um, I mentioned to you before we started recording that we have a um, list of prompts to use 
um, uh, that we set up in the first episode of the season. And I, I, I never sent you that list, but I have um, a couple of options off of the list that I, I think could work for helping us to, to imagine Suzu's neighbor. Um, and, and our options, I'm curious to see which of these you think would be a, a more narratively or thematically interesting thing to have in this character's life. Um, are either a very nice painting or a very bad painting. Oh, huh. Wow, that's such a... That's, huh. All right, give, let's see. Which of those is more interesting? You know what? You know what? I'm going to go with... Uh, and I'll explain myself here in a minute. Um, I'm going to go with a bad painting of a good thing. So Suzu loses her right hand. I love that so much, and I intuitively understand exactly why you're saying yeah. that. <laughs> okay. But so, please go along anyway. So Suzu, you know, she lost her right hand, her dominant hand, the hand that she drew with the entire movie. And I forgot to mention um, earlier on when I was talking about the OST, but there is one other song um, that is one of the main themes of the movie. So the first one that I mentioned, the Migete no Uta, the right hand song, but then... Um, a song that plays more toward the end of the movie, um, and I don't know exactly what the Japanese is, but it basically translates to the world drawn by the left hand. So Suzu is clumsily crafting what, you know, this new her new life is supposed to be with her non-dominant hand. And I mean, what, what a better way to sum it up than a good... A, a bad picture of a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. What do we think it's a picture of? I would... So the white rabbits, the, the wave caps that she drew when she was young and still in school, and children blowing dandelions on hilltops, and the way in the movie um, when you're in Suzu's mindscape and airplanes are flying overhead and the bombs are going off, because that trauma is never going to go away, um, they're depicted as like paint, paint smears across the sky and paint blobs where the bombs go off and um but but clumsily drawn by hand with colored pencil if if that makes sense and the way the movie ends with suzu and her husband adopting a little girl after they lost oh gosh i'm trying to remember i i have her name written down in my notes uh ta -ta -ta -ta. harumi um, after she loses her right hand and Harumi dies in the explosion, um, and they find a child who is orphaned after uh, the, the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima, and they bring her home, and one of the final scenes in the credits just kind of shows the little girl wearing a dress of Harumi's, but she's a little bit taller, so they've sewn on extra fabric to make it fit her. Um, and I imagine the three of them walking hand in hand, and she might be holding Suzu's stump and just walking into whatever whatever that light that i talked about at the end of all of it is um i actually really love this question what a what a beautiful representation and i had absolutely no notes to guide me so this is just kind of fresh out of my little my little noggin uh, i love that you bring notes to these i i you know it's funny i i wish you could see it so it's a it's a hello kitty notebook because it, oh my god i love you <laughs> writing them i was like i wonder where in this notebook uh i put last times and i like you know it's a it's a mostly empty notebook and i kind of uh let the pages fall through my hands and landed on it um uh, way off i'm i'm not i'm i'm so chaotic i like don't start on the first page and then like 
just keep going. I tend to like start eight pages in and then eight pages later I will do something again. And uh, I love this notebook. So it was with me last time and it seemed ceremonial that I did it again. So here we are. <laughs> I love that. Uh, again, I feel like that's so telling as to who she's I a, am. She's her own guest on the show, that notebook. Hello Kitty is is, is an honorary guest of original podcast Do Not Steal. I, <laughs> I, you know, I try to act like, I've, I feel like in some ways I've grown so much since we knew each other in high school. And then otherwise I'm like, nah, I'm like exactly the same. <laughs> I I think that I, I I would never want you to not bring a Hello Kitty notebook to these events. <laughs> I would never want you to not be a, a Hello Kitty notebook person. Hello Kitty notebook is an extremely important grain of sand. Thank you very much. I uh I she will be present at all future meetings. You will get to know her on a very <laughs> uh a, a very comfortable level. So um it definitely feels like the character creation was not like a super important element of this episode, but I do just for the the sake of the formality of it and having something to put in the the episode description when it goes live um we're imagining um suzu's neighbor who she gives the who she like i assume suzu gives this painting to um in just like a like a moment of kindness she has a lot of paintings and um she like maybe there's like one scene in our like imagined movie where she has like this interaction with the neighbor maybe doesn't even learn her name um but like sees her neighbor struggling with something um and offers her a painting like whatever painting she was just like working on in the moment um and and the neighbor takes it back into the house and like that like that's maybe the whole character is just like a a person who is like also struggling and they they share a moment of connection and and they have this little exchange um and 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 I I feel I feel pretty content with with calling that the character of the episode. If you're if you're okay with that, I just keep imagining her actually as like a little old lady. Is that I don't know why that I love that is the vibe. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, she's like the little Obat Chan with her like she you know she's got the little wrap around her head and her little apron on and her little slippers and she's just. You know, she's the neighbor that, like, brings you extra cucumber when her garden was prospering this summer. And and uh, she loves all the neighborhood children. And, you know, she's uh, she's just another person who keeps on living now that uh, what's done is done. I think she's, um, I love the idea that she would give cucumbers from her garden. I want to say that, like, that had happened in past. Um, and on like the the day that our exchange our scene takes place the the day with the painting um she doesn't have any cucumbers and she like apologizes for it um she's like out the times are times are tough uh food is short um and and suzu uh like offers her a painting like here's the times are tough and is like you've given us so much here have this um i hope it gives you something it's so wholesome I do. I I like picturing that. <laughs> and it's it's not a good painting, but it's of a beautiful thing, and so they they're both appreciative of it. Like you 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 know you don't you don't know you don't have to use words to express the value of it. It's just it's just powerful because it's it's so human. It's so delightfully human to share to be vulnerable and to share your art um, with somebody, uh, especially when you have a connection uh related to 
loss and to rebuilding. Um, what a powerful way to share yourself with another person. So uh, what a delightful scene that does not exist in the movie, but it should. But it, it, it could. We could imagine such a scene. It does, yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an executive decision. Normally we include uh, a segment called I Ship It at this moment in the podcast, but I think just given the tone of the episode, I think it would totally ruin things to include it. So I'm going <laughs> to gently excise that segment. Uh, we already got our, our mandatory one South Park reference per episode Woo, for season we two. So we, <laughs> so we we don't need to include the South Park sound effect that Devin put in the the I ship it audio segment, so we can just, we can move past it. I love that I'm just, um, like, up in here, like, completely uh, derailing your format, because I'm, like, I'm, like, treating it as, like, the therapy session no, I, I cannot afford, <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm, like, I don't, I'm just here I, don't, to, I don't feel here to, like I'm absorbing your, your therapy session. I feel like I'm absorbing your wisdom. I feel like you have things to offer. It's... I I, I, I I don't feel like your therapist in this moment. I feel like I'm I'm receiving things from you. It's group therapy. <laughs> it's cathartic. I think this is um. I think this is the single most tonally dissonant two episode run of the show. Um, the 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 previous episode before this was all clown shoes, ridiculous. Um, uh, covering the God's Not Dead movies. Um. And and to, to to go from that to this, um. <laughs> I'm like I'm always I'm like I just come in and completely derail your structure. I'm gonna have to come and be on an episode where I'm just um off the wall like like I want I want to be I want to be crude and I want to be <laughs> I need to I need to get out of my you like come onto an episode and say swear words, dude. I I you know I was. I was writing my script, and I legit wrote in, like, my little cliff notes. I was like, back on my bullshit. And I was like, should I swear? And then I was like, well, if they edit it out, it will add character. And now it's like, oh, man. Like, what the what could I have done with my time here today? But that's okay. I, I love what I created. Um, I, I love what you created, too. I, I love being able to speak about this. I'm so happy that you've seen the movie and that... Um, you know, you're able to like share it a little bit in that connection with me. And I hope if you watch it again in the future, it, it reminds you of the things that, you know, I, I talked about here today and, you know, whether you're watching Fruits Basket or a Studio Ghibli movie or in this corner of the world and you're just like, I hope it feels good. I hope it feels like a warm cup of tea on a bad day. I want to share, um, you asked at the very beginning to, um, come up with some, like, things that are important, things that get you out of the bed, uh, in the morning, and, um, one of the, one of the answers that I, that I came up with while I was pondering it was, um, uh, creation. I love to, I love to make things. I love to make, um, uh, art and this podcast, and I love to make, uh, games and little videos and, um, uh, just things, and 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 part of that is, part of that is this show, and part of this is is imagining, um, uh, characters together, and so I just um, thank you for thank you for joining me in that. Thank you for uh, uh, being a part of, being a part of my answer to that question today, Becca. 
I hope you were able to balance all your ping pong balls and your pebbles and your sand. <laughs> and maybe, you know, um, if, if it ever, like, I, I highly recommend if you're ever working with youths to, to use this analogy for life because it, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just a big pile of soft serve ice cream, but like, I found it very profound, like the first time it was actually brought to my attention and it wasn't when I was like young, it was, I mean, I guess young enough. It was when I was in my instructional years in college, um, working toward my degree and it was, uh, brought up as, um, you know, just a metaphor for balance and, and I just really loved it. And, and I love the applications across mediums, um, just taking the opportunity to to make those mind body connections for the things that really matter to us because i mean what like there's no better way to connect with somebody than to than to ask those questions and even if it's a little bit uncomfortable at first because you know <laughs> nobody nobody usually feels comfortable getting asked heavy questions right off the bat but it gets easier um no i was i was ready for it with this I figured it might happen. Yeah, I'm uh I'm I'm just I'm just always coming here ready to re- ready to feel some feelings and so thank you for sharing them with me. Um uh, do you do you have any questions for me? Um I would love to I would love to close out with um uh, each of us coming up with one fun fact piece about our neighborly woman, something that is um not already implied, maybe something about her her look or the way she's animated or um, any other little piece of information to, to give her a little bit more texture and then we can we can do our sign-offs. You know what? I'm going to say, so, and this is also speaking from my own personal experience. Um, when I brought up earlier, way, way earlier, when I was talking about the beginning of the movie, um, when Suzu was young and she would go as a child to her grandparents' house and would eat watermelon and sleep in the shade, um, I like to imagine that she also grows watermelons and I feel like, I mean, maybe, maybe people will disagree with me. My dad growing up was never successful. He successfully grew one watermelon and he like tried with them (laughs) on many occasions and just, it was never fruitful. So I just have this like quiet, like this quiet belief that, uh, like little old ladies, they know, I don't, I don't know if they like whisper to them, uh, and tell them good things to make them grow, or if they know uh, how to get the water just right. But um, I'd like to believe that Suzu's little old neighbor would surprise her and her husband and that new child with watermelon, so that the child could experience that all over again. She is she is a watermelon queen. I think um, I love that. I love I love the watermelons. I think my fun fact is that our. Uh, our neighbor character is uh, hard of hearing, and so the main way that Suzu communicates with her is by um, uh, like writing things down, um, which is which is tricky with her left hand. But like you see them making it work. Wow, you just ruptured my sweet little heart. That's that's really that's a beautiful <laughs> what a what a characterizing. Uh, that's not even just like a fun fact. That's just like a delightful uh, <laughs> way of bringing somebody that again, like we're just. This is, we're bringing her into existence, and I, I love her already. That, well, that was um, fun. Thank you, thank you so much for being on, Becca. Do you want to um, reintroduce yourself? I don't, I don't know if you have any pluggables this time, but you're welcome to plug them if you do. 
Um, I I don't have any pluggables. I'm I'm not cool, but um, you know <laughs> that's not true. I'm just I'm just a little a little crybaby, a little moss baby. I'm just doing my best. I hope you're doing your best. I hope we get to speak again soon. <laughs> yeah, I hope we get to have you on again when Devin is back, and also um, I will I will yeah. And and you know what? Next time I'm gonna I'm gonna bring. I'm gonna bring something new to the table. I love my artistry in this, but I'm I'm excited to uh, branch out and experience the show in a little bit more of an authentic format. Uh, so, sure, thank yeah. you for every opportunity, and I always have so much fun. Thank you all for listening. Um, my name has been Amber Autumn. She, her, um, our theme music is by Kyle Alicia, whose work you can find at hollowrib.bandcamp.com. Um, normally, this is the point when Devin would say, uh, "Join us next week when Devin try or when <laughs> when Amber Autumn tries in vain to get us to talk about Gem and the Holograms." But instead, um, we have a brand new, never before on the show guest, Nina, to talk about Avatar: The Last Airbender. Um, Thank you for listening. Please feel free to drop us a like, drop us a review, drop us a five-star rating, and swing by our merch store where we will be selling jars of ping pong balls, pebbles, and sand. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everyone. Good night. Bye. Okay, can I turn the... I guess I can turn it off.